probably the two most powerful words in our cultural and political conversation today are love and hate. I think this can be seen in one of the most influential slogans of the last decade, love wins. This phrase suggests that love is this force which is endlessly on the move, endlessly progressing, endlessly enabling people to do whatever they want to do and to be whoever they want to be. I can't tell you how many times on Facebook this week I saw people talking about being their authentic selves. And the idea is that this love is destined to prevail, that it will roll back all that would constrain it. And this slogan, Love Wins, was used with great effect by homosexual rights advocates in the last decade, saying our love is destined to prevail over this world and to stop all that would inhibit us from doing what we want to do. This same slogan was used by Rob Bell, who at the time was a megachurch pastor, who wrote a book in which he was trying to tell Christians they should reject the doctrine of hell, saying God's love was so boundless in the end he would save everybody. And the way this slogan is used reflects a reality. That today, if you want to have influence, if you want to have the applause of society, if you want to, if you want to have you know, the applause of men and, and your workplace, you want to be on the side of what the world calls love. But the worst thing that can happen to you is that you are labeled a hater. And how does one become a hater? By dissenting from whatever is done in the name of love by debating the legitimacy of whatever is done in the name of love, by just practicing the virtue that was so celebrated in the last century, tolerance. The tolerance isn't enough anymore in our world. Now you have to affirm what anybody else wants to do all the time or you are a hater. And culture says, if you are a hater, then you are on the wrong side of history. That someday soon, other people, maybe your kids or your grandkids, will look at you and the views that you hold and they'll see you just like we today look back on the Nazis or the slave traders because love wins. So you'd better get on board with love or else society will reject you, restrict you, silence you, and marginalize you as a hater. As I said, love and hate are powerful words in discourse today. They're also terribly misunderstood words. Because this idea that love constitutes unconditional affirmation is emphatically false. Does love mean that you should unconditionally affirm your drunk friend when he's about to get into the, the driver's side of his car and he's got his keys out without you trying to stop him? Is that loving? Does love mean you should unconditionally affirm your child as she runs around trying to stick her finger in an electrical socket? Of course not, because true love warns against danger, does it not? True love issues correction before disaster ensues. But today, warning someone about where their conduct will lead is seen as hateful, even if your warnings are coming from a sincere desire to help others. At the same time, our allegedly loving society is really quite hateful. People in our society really hate one another. So much talk about racial hatred and men who hate women and women who hate men and religious hatred and political hatred. Recent study shows that one in five Americans, roughly, said they wished that people in the other political party would, quote, just die. The path to love winning is apparently grotesque hatred. 
In fact, I think this idea that love is unconditional affirmation is itself hateful. Because if you can do whatever you want, no matter how dangerous it is, and I'm not supposed to intervene, friends, that's not love, that's indifference. And indifference is a form of hatred because it says, I don't care what happens to you. So what society calls hate is often an expression of love, and what society calls love is often an expression of hate. But this morning, we're going to see what God has to say about love and hate in the Bible. And we're going to discover that not only do love and hate mean something very different than what we see in our culture, but we're going to see that those of us who belong to Jesus are to be people who personally strive to reflect the love of God shown to us by Christ. And friends, we're not just to love people who think like us or believe like us or act like us. Friends, we are even to love those who hate us and persecute us. And that's what Jesus is going to say as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to finish our long trip through Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 43 to 48. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And we're going to see four points this morning. First, Jesus introduces his subject of love and hate by quoting a popular misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. Second, Jesus will reject this misinterpretation by commanding his disciples to love their enemies. Third, Jesus will explain why his disciples must love their enemies. And fourth, Jesus will conclude this discussion and really this large section of the Sermon on the Mount we've been in for several weeks by pointing believers to God's moral perfection. Let's start with our first point in which Jesus introduces his subject, love and hate, by quoting a popular misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus declared at the start of this section, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The most influential religious leaders of Jesus' day were the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were very popular in ancient Judea and Galilee because they were seen as very holy and very righteous. But Jesus warns his audience that the Pharisees and the scribes are not holy or righteous. In fact, they utterly fail to meet God's standard of righteousness. They are not on the path to participation in the glory and bliss of God's kingdom. Rather, they are on a collision course with the wrath of God. And over the last 20-some verses, we have seen that the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes caused terrible misinterpretations of the law that God had given to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai led to all kind of moral confusion in Israel. As a result of the Pharisees and scribes' teaching, we have seen that Jesus' culture believed that you can hate your enemies in your heart all day long, so long as you don't actually do anything about it. That you can entertain all manner of illicit sexual fantasies, so long as you don't act them out. That husbands, you can drop your wife for any time and any reason. That you can play carefully crafted word games to lie and defraud others that you can avenge whatever private wrong you've suffered. And if you did these things, God was okay with it. You're obeying the law. That's what they said. But over the last several weeks, we've seen that Jesus, who is the one to whom the entire Old Covenant points, Jesus, who is the authoritative interpreter of the law, Jesus, who is the culmination of the law and the prophets, as proven by his sinlessly perfect life and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus declares that none of these things are acceptable to God. None of these things constitute righteousness. The Pharisees and scribes have totally missed God's intention, the true direction in which the law points. So Jesus has been setting the record straight. And now one more time, Jesus sets the record straight on what God meant in the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He here quotes... 
an idea that was widely held in first century Judaism. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, what's Jesus quoting here? Well, part of this quotation comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. We often associate these words with Jesus, right? As we should. Because in chapter 22, Jesus is going to say these are part of the, the, the great combination of commandments that God has ordained. This is an ethic for the new covenant age that all of the believers in Jesus are to follow, that we are to love God and we are to love other people. But what you might not know is that this command actually comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus. Israelites were commanded to love their neighbors. But many Israelites familiar with this command would wonder, well, who is my neighbor? You might remember somebody asks Jesus that question in Luke chapter 10. Who's my neighbor? In other words, who does God require me to love? And the way that the Jews of, of Jesus' day answered this question was that they looked to Leviticus 19.18, the first part, which also said this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So they concluded, neighbor equals Israelite. Israelites are to love other Israelites. Okay, but what about non-Israelites? What was the Jews' posture to be towards them? Well, we find the answer they came up with in the second half of Matthew 5.43. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we never find the words, you shall hate your enemy, anywhere in the Old Testament. Anywhere. Where did they come up with this idea? That God commanded them to hate Gentiles. And I want you to understand that's how they understood this. The way Jesus structures this is the same way he structures the other commands that we've seen from God in this passage. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall love your neighbor. And now he says that the idea prevalent in his society is you shall hate your enemy. That this was God's command. Hate Gentiles. Where'd they come up with this idea? They come from two sources. First, it came from their own reasoning. They said, well, God tells me to love my neighbor. What about other people? I guess I can hate them. Second, I think they found support for this idea from a few passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 139 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Psalm 69 Add to my foes punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. May they be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. These are portions of the Old Testament American Christianity doesn't talk much about, right? The imprecatory psalms, the psalms of cursing. In these passages, we see the psalmist says he hates his enemies. He prays for God to kill them. He prays sometimes for God to kill their families. And he prays for God to condemn them forever. What are we to make of these passages? Well, at first we might read them and draw the same conclusion the Jews drew. It's right and appropriate to hate our enemies and desire their destruction. Is that right? Is that, did God really command you shall hate your enemies? Well, let's examine this for a minute. 
Let's start with the question of what did the law say to Israelites about how to treat their enemies? Is it true God required hatred? Exodus 23, 4 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall rescue it. God doesn't say, if you find your enemy's donkey, kill it. He says, show kindness to your enemies. And not just outward kindness while remaining hateful inwardly. In Leviticus 19, where God said to love your neighbors, immediately before that command, in, in verse 17 of Leviticus 19, God said, you shall not hate your neighbor in the heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin against him. Don't hate a neighbor or it's sin. Say, okay, but neighbors equal Israelites, right? So can Jews hate Gentiles? Well, this same chapter, Leviticus 19.33 says, When a stranger, a Gentile, sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the sojourner who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Here's God's command for how the Jews were to treat Gentiles among them. Love them as you love yourself. It's the same. God is forbidding the Jews from having racial hatred against Gentiles in their midst. Say, okay, but what about Gentiles away from Israel? Well, it's true. In Deuteronomy 7, God said, kill the Canaanites. But that was a unique situation in which God used Israel as his means of judgment upon an unrepentantly evil culture. But destruction was not God's general rule for how the Jews should interact with Gentiles. Instead, Deuteronomy 20 tells Israelites to treat other Gentiles quite differently. It says, don't destroy them. Offer them peace terms. Only if they reject your peace terms are you to go to war with them. Psalm 67 goes further. Psalm 67.1 says, May God be gracious to us, Israel, and bless us and make his face to shine on us, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power to all nations. This was God's plan for the nations in the Old Testament. You know, in the New Testament, we've got the Great Commission. We're to go and spread the gospel to other people. We don't find that in the Old Testament. Instead, what we find is this. Israel is to obey the law. Under the Mosaic Covenant, as they obey, they will get material blessings. Other nations will see how well Israel's doing. They will come to Israel. They will learn about the reality of God, and they will be saved. That's God's mission strategy in the Old Testament. And we see how it plays out in 1 Kings 10. The queen of Sheba comes to Israel because she hears about Solomon's great wealth and wisdom, and she leaves hearing about the Lord. So the Old Testament didn't tell Jews to indiscriminately hate Gentiles. The Jews were to be kind and peaceful to Gentiles, even pointing them to the Lord. You say, okay, okay, but what about the imprecatory psalms? What about the psalms of cursing? Is this not clear evidence that God commanded people to hate their enemies? I grant that the language of hatred is used in these psalms, but I think a closer look at these psalms reveals why the psalmists feel as strongly as they feel. Because these passages are all about horrific, unjust evils, which God's people have endured at the hands of unrepentant evildoers. Okay, these prayers, friends, are prayers for divine justice. This is not saying, you know, God, someone inconvenienced me. I got a fender bender from them. So God, kill them and kill their families. That's not what's going on here. Or God, I hate all Gentiles, so kill them. No. 
In these passages, there are specific acts of horrific injustice which have been done against the people of God. And the psalmist cries out for justice, a justice that is proportionate to the wickedness that the evildoers have inflicted on God's people, which asks God to repay to these evildoers exactly what they have done to Israel, an eye for an eye. That's what the famous passage in Psalm 137 is about. The Babylonians massacred Israelite children. So the Israelites say to God, let the Babylonians experience the same evil bitterness. So these passages are not some crazy, vengeful escalation of a minor interpersonal conflict or some racial hatred. The imprecatory psalms are solemn requests that God, in His perfect justice, will defend and avenge His people who have suffered abominable wrongs. Now, I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the propriety of us today praying for justice. But what I want you to see here is this. The psalms of cursing are different than the ethic Jesus is quoting in verse 43. The ethic in, that Jesus quotes in verse 43 is not about God's justice. The imprecatory psalms were about God, please be just. The ethic Jesus is quoting in Psalm 43 has nothing to do with God's justice. We're going to see in the verses that follow, the ethic Jesus is reacting to is an ethic that says, my personal hatred is just. My desire for vengeance is just. I have the right to be unkind to those who've been unkind to me against Gentiles or my own personal adversaries. Jesus is here speaking against the ethic that we talked about last week. The ethic that drove Israelites to join the party of the Zealots and say, yeah, let's kill Romans. Or that drove them to become Sicarii, terrorists who have murdered Roman officials. That's the ethic Jesus is reacting against. An ethic of personal hatred and vengeance that is entirely unjustified by the Old Testament. And we see this now in our second point. As Jesus rejects this misinterpretation of the law by commanding his disciples to love their enemies. So the culture in Jesus' day said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Now Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, and once more, Jesus makes this amazing statement, pointing to his authority to be the one to declare God's standard for righteousness and God's will for interpersonal behavior. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus now tells us this is where God's intention in the old covenant really was. And as he does so, he's speaking to his disciples then, and by extension, he is speaking to all of his disciples, including all of us who know Christ today. And he's telling us this is how we're to live not by the ethic of hating our enemies, but by the shocking ethic of loving our enemies. Now, the first thing we need to see here is that Jesus' words presuppose that we will have enemies, believing friends. This is a hard truth for many modern Christians. Intellectually, we know the Bible talks about persecution, but many of us may feel distant from the experience described in these texts, as though hate and persecution is an exaggeration or an abstraction, or something for ancient people, or something people in other cultures experience, but not for us today. But friends, do not be deceived. Jesus' disciples who stand for the gospel will face opposition. Now you may say, well, that's not my experience. And if it isn't, my question to you is why not? Probably because the people around you don't know that you really have any connection to the gospel. Because they don't know what you believe. Because they haven't heard from you that they need to repent and trust Christ. And maybe that's because you're confused about what it means to love your neighbor. I said earlier, society has said love is unconditional affirmation. Maybe you buy into that. You don't want to tell anybody you're wrong, you're in sin. Or maybe you practice another ethic that's related to this, which I see all the time 
in American Christianity today. The ethic of niceness. If I only ever say nice things, that's what Jesus wants. Whatever seems kind is from the Lord, and whatever doesn't isn't. And this ethic's often justified with appeals to verses like Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting speech proceed out of your mouth, but such is as good for edifying, that it may give grace to them that hear. And we think, oh, that, that means I should be nice. And, and I just said, bless your heart a lot, and that's what Jesus wants from me. Sometimes I think we don't realize that the word of edifying grace that people need to hear can be a word of admonition or rebuke. You say, that doesn't sound very nice. It isn't, but that doesn't mean that it's unloving. In fact, admonition and rebuke are often the kindest, most loving thing you can say to someone. But while the pseudo-Christian ethic of niceness doesn't make enemies, the legitimate Christian ethic of speaking the truth of the gospel in love will make enemies. And Jesus told us that earlier in this chapter, didn't he? Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Friends, this is the common experience of believers who truly live out the Christian life, who are counted for the gospel. That because of our righteous conduct and because of the offense of the gospel, others will slander you, they will revile you, they will persecute you. This is a common and natural response of unregenerate people to proclamation of the truth. And Jesus said this in John 8. He says, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And the reason you don't hear is that you are not of God. Hard-hearted people don't want to hear the truth. It makes them angry. It makes them your enemies. Now, maybe you say, well, I know there's some opposition in my life, but it's not like people face elsewhere. My experience isn't really like persecution that happens in other countries. Nobody's threatened my life or my job because of my faith. Maybe not. But persecution and opposition aren't always massive state-driven endeavors. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 10 of this book. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Sometimes the opposition we face when we believe the gospel and proclaim Christ happens in our own families, in our friend groups, and in our churches. Friends, if you speak up about the gospel, you will wind up with enemies somewhere. It's an inevitability. But when you wind up making enemies, how should you deal with them? It's easy to hate them because that's the natural response of the flesh, right? And hate is a powerful desire. Lord Byron said, hatred is by far the longest pleasure. And he's right. If you hate someone, usually you really begin to relish that hatred. You begin to gloat when you hear your enemy is in misery. You rejoice when you hear they're destroyed. You feel self-righteous by reciting the list of their faults to yourself. And if you hear they have more faults, that just makes you really happy. Hatred is a long-lived and a wicked delight. And hatred is the normal experience for unbelievers. Listen to Titus 3.3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's life apart from Christ. You hate and you're hated. 
But when you come to Christ and make enemies, those enemies still hate you, but now instead of hating them in return, instead of wishing for their ruin, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right, well, what does love mean? We said it doesn't mean unconditionally affirming whatever somebody else does. It doesn't just mean being nice. Unlike what pop music says, love is not sex. Unlike what romantic comedies tell us, love is not an uncontrollable feeling of attraction. Okay, what is love? The Bible says if you want to understand love, you need to look to the ultimate demonstration of love. God the Father sent God the Son into this world to die for our sins. One of the most famous Bible verses reveals this very plainly. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now when this verse says God so loved the world, He does not mean God loved the world so much. He doesn't. The word so here means in this way. So this is how God loved the world. He sent His Son to give humanity a means of salvation, a path to eternal life through belief in Jesus. Or listen to 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, so what's love? God sent His Son to give us life by dying as the atoning sacrifice who reconciles us to God. Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you want to understand love, first you've got to look to the cross. And what do you see at the cross? You see the love of the Father. But how specifically? What is love specifically? Well, number one, I think that when we look at the cross, we see that God cares about others. God is genuinely concerned for the welfare of lost humanity. He sees our plight and doesn't abandon us. Rather, number two, on the basis of his concern about you and me, God acts to benefit others. He benefits us. He does what is necessary to give us a way to be saved. He makes atonement for our sin. He makes a way to impute to our account the very righteousness of God himself. But to do that, number three, God benefits us at a cost to himself. The most stunning cost, as the Father gives the Son to buy a people for his own possession. Friends, the cross shows us what love really is. Love is a real concern for someone else that manifests itself in selfless action to benefit that other person, even though it will cost us something. And that's what we find when we read the famous words in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Again, love is a real concern for someone else that manifests itself in selfless action to benefit them, usually at a cost to us. And that's how we respond to our enemies. We are not to desire their ruin. We are not to cheer for their downfall. I read one commentary that says, The only one who is to laugh when judgment is meted out by God is God himself, according to Psalm 2. Amos 5 says, Don't desire the destruction of your enemies. Be careful because the day of the Lord is not something to cheer for. It is a horrible day. But even 
beside questions of judgment. Friends, we are not to be resentful, arrogant, irritable, or rude towards our adversaries. Neither are we just to capitulate to their evil. We are not to rejoice in or affirm the evil they commit. Love says we are to desire what is best for them. We are to do what we can to benefit them, to do something for their good. And to that end, we are to be patient with them. We are to be kind. We are to be gracious. We are to give them better than what they deserve for what they do to us. And we are to be generous to them. Hear the word of God, Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Believing, friend, don't return evil for evil. Instead, repay evil with kindness and mercy and generosity. Jesus says in a parallel passage in Luke 6, Love your enemies. So hard to do, isn't it? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We'll talk about that verse more in a few weeks. And friends, as we do this, we're to do it without boasting or self-promotion. Hey, enemy, look what a great martyr I'm being. Look what a great victim I'm being. You know, like talk yourself. No. And we're to do this despite the fact that being gracious and generous to our enemies means we're going to pay a real cost for doing it. Because they're going to hate that this is the way we respond to them. And because, friends, this is so important to hear in our day. Love always travels with truth. Okay, the two are inseparable. I've heard over the years, oh, you want, you're all about truth. What about love? You're all about love. What about No. Real love and real truth travel together. They are not separable. They're not divisible. And so even as we are kind to our persecutors and our, and our enemies who hate us because of the gospel, we are never to do anything that minimizes or negates the truth of the gospel. Instead, we keep showing love and kindness to them while upholding the very thing they hate us for. And that may make them hate us even more. But that doesn't change the fact that we are both to be kind to our enemies and we're to give them the gospel. And we're to pray for them. And by praying for them, I don't mean that we pray the prayers of imprecation. Right? Say, how should I pray for an enemy? Listen to 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, pray for your enemies to come to Christ. It's the most wonderful thing you could hope for for anyone, right? We pray this for our kids and our relatives and our friends, do we not? Pray the same way for your enemies. For love is about desiring the best for someone else. And the absolute best thing that can happen to your enemy is that they're saved. And that they're liberated from bondage to Satan and sin and that they become a new creation. So pray for their salvation and pray for God to forgive them. Because in this, we follow Jesus, do we not? Who in his great love for us endured the cross at great personal cost to himself. And as they tortured him and crucified him, what words were on his lips? Father, forgive them. Friends, that's how we are to respond to our enemies and our persecutors. 
with grace and generosity, mercy, forgiveness, and prayer. And let me say, if that's how we respond to out-and-out persecutors, how then should we respond to other people that we might feel hatred for who we've never actually met? I don't know about you, I remember times people have come on TV and I just got lots of invective against them because I don't like that guy and I don't like what he stands for. This statistic, about 20% of Americans wishing that people in the other political party would just die. Friend, if you can relate to that, in the name of Christ, repent, because that is evil. If you're just so angry at somebody else that you've never met, who's really never done you any harm, repent. If you hate other people because of what they look like or whether they're a man or a woman, repent. I'm not being woke, okay? This should not be controversial among Christians. If we're to love our enemies, we better love everybody else too. And wasn't that Jesus' answer when he was asked, who's my neighbor? The parable of the Good Samaritan not only tells us that everyone is our neighbor, but it tells us to be good and loving neighbors to everybody else. And that's the idea. Now, all that being said, does this mean that we should never pray for God to do justice upon evildoers in our world? Many Christians say yes. They say Jesus' instruction here means we should not pray imprecatory prayers. However, with respect, I disagree for four reasons. First, in Matthew 21, Jesus, our great example of holiness, pronounces a curse upon the fig tree which represents unrepentant Israel. Second, in Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul says, of those who proclaim a false gospel, let them be accursed, which is, is an imprecation. And this basically means they need to go to hell for what they're doing. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul pronounces the same curse upon everyone who does not love the Lord. And I think the most important text on this is Revelation 6.10. Here we have the disembodied souls of martyrs who are in heaven, who are incapable of sin, and they pray this prayer. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? That's an imprecatory prayer. That is a prayer for God to administer judgment, justice, and vengeance. And the context there is clearly not sinful because these guys are in heaven. So I do think there is a place for imprecatory prayers in the Christian life today. And I say that with great caution and having reflected on this carefully for years. But where is the place for imprecatory prayers? Well, let me, let me put it to you like this. Think about the biggest persecutors of Christians today. How should we pray for Islamic State? How should we pray for Kim Jong-un or false teachers? I think verse 44 tells us we should primarily pray for their ultimate good, that they would be saved gloriously, right? For the glory of God, for their good, for the good of Christian people, we should pray for them to be saved. We should desire that more earnestly than anything else we pray for. But I also think it's legitimate after praying for their salvation to say to the Lord, but God, if they will not repent for the good of your people, please defend your people and do justice. But friends, we must not only thirst for vengeance. We must give priority to the command of Christ here to love our enemies. But I still think these texts show us in the New Testament there is still a place to pray for justice and to pronounce doom upon those who are unrepentant in perpetrating terrible wrongs, but only as a secondary matter. Our first and best attitude must be love towards our enemies. But why? Why must we love our enemies? Why should we not just give in to vengeance? And we find the answer to this in our third point, where Jesus tells us why we should uh, love our enemies. Look at verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's the idea. If you say, I give hate for hate and love for love, you're acting no differently than how lost people behave. Jesus says this is how the unregenerate view love. And he illustrates this by talking about Gentiles, who first century Jews hated. We've talked about that already. And tax collectors, who the Jews viewed as traitors that were serving the Romans. In the culture of first century Judaism, these two groups are the lowest of the low. They are the most reprehensible. And Jesus says, these people you look down on the most, the people you consider enemies, this is how they love. They love those who love them, and they hate those who hate them. That's not praiseworthy. Loving those who are kind to you is not something to celebrate. You don't get a trophy for that, right? That's not a sign of profound faith and godliness. That's something that's so normal and obvious. Even the worst of the worst know how to do that. But Jesus says, here's something radically different than the way that unsaved people think about love. Love your enemies. This is not an outworking of selfishness. Loving your enemies is commendable and praiseworthy because it imitates God himself who is gracious to his enemies. Now that might surprise you. God is gracious to his enemies? I thought God only gave grace to believers. I thought God had wrath for his enemies. Well, wait a minute. Let's think about what grace means. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. Now, we often think about this in the context of salvation. As sinners, we all deserve the wages of sin. We all deserve to die. But instead, those who repentantly entrust themselves to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection receive God's free gift of salvation in Christ. Right? That's a kindness we don't deserve. That's a kindness God has lavished on us who used to be his enemies. That's grace, and that's totally true. Salvation is a grace God gives to believers. But God is a gracious God, and God gives other gracious gifts besides salvation. Think about it like this. Every human is conceived guilty of sin and fallen. Every one of us deserves death and hell. But instead, what does God give us? Every person who's ever lived, they enjoy some measure of life. Every second we get that we're not in hell is an act of grace. It is a kindness that we don't deserve. And God gives us all some measure of time. And while every person lives, we get to experience some good things. Even the most vile, wretched enemy of the Lord usually winds up having some family, some friends, and some fun. It's way beyond what he deserves, right? That's grace. And that's what Jesus says here. God lets the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God lets the rain fall on the believer and the unbeliever alike. Rain was a really important thing in an agricultural society. No rain meant people starved. Rain was a gift from God, as was sunshine. And those blessings don't only run to the righteous. Friends, God has not built this universe so that only his people get benefits in this world. It's not like unbelievers get dry farmland and believers walk around with little rain clouds over our head, right? That is the lie of the prosperity gospel. That in this life, the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. Friends, often the opposite seems true, right? That's Psalm 73. Often the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And part of why that happens is that God allows even the wicked to experience some good things in this life. This is what theologians call common grace. The grace that God gives to all of humanity. The grace of time and the life and the joys of living. 
And what Jesus says is, just as God gives common grace even to his enemies, likewise believers should give grace to our enemies. Because God is our Father. And as God's adopted children, we should reflect how our Father acts. Now you might say, well, how can I reflect God? God's infinite, I'm not. God's all-powerful, I'm not. How can I imitate God? It's true, there are some attributes of God you can't imitate. But you can imitate God's moral attributes. In fact, the New Testament commands that of us. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, imitate God's moral attributes. Imitate his love, even towards our enemies. That's the point of this passage. But now we come to our last point. And we see here that not only are we to imitate God and his love, we are to imitate God and his moral perfection. And that's what Jesus says in the last verse of this glorious chapter. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Loving others, even loving our enemies, is a reflection not just of God's love. It is a reflection of God's holiness. You know, Leviticus 19 is the chapter that told Israel to love their neighbors and Gentiles. But you know how it starts? Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Words that are applied to the church in 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Believing, friends, we're no longer what we were. We used to be slaves of sin. We used to be dominated by hatred. But now we have been set free because Jesus Christ has died and risen. Because he has inaugurated the new covenant. And so the old covenant and the old law has passed away. Ephesians 2 says, By the blood of Christ, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The law the Gentiles thought was so peculiar, they used it as a ground for anti-Semitism. The law which Jews revered so much, they used it as a justification to hate Gentiles. Jesus made an end to it. But while Romans 10 says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe, that doesn't mean that believers are free to live in moral anarchy, free to join the world in its rebellion and moral anarchy. No, friends, we are to obey the commands of the New Testament. Now, what we've seen in this chapter is that, in fact, this is a higher ethic than obedience to the letter of the law. This is a higher ethic than obedience to the man-made strictures of the scribes and Pharisees. Friends, Jesus calls us to the highest possible standard, of perfection, the perfection of the thrice holy God. And this is why we must love our enemies, because this is what the resplendent moral perfection of God requires. And this is why we are called to the high ethics that Jesus has legislated for us in this chapter. This is why when we are angry with someone else, or we know someone has cause to be angry with us, we are to go humble ourselves and settle the dispute. This is why when we are tempted with illicit sexual desires, we must control our thinking. This is why we must honor our wedding vows and forswear divorce. This is why what we say must simply be yes or no. This is why we must turn the other cheek and not avenge ourselves on those who wrong us. And this is why we must love our enemies. Because we are to be holy as God is holy. And friends, God is infinitely holy. Now in one sense, this standard is bad news, is it not? Because we've all failed. 
We've all been angry. We've all lusted. Maybe we haven't divorced, but I bet a lot of us at some point have thought about it. We've all lied. We've all desired vengeance. We've all indulged in hate. As Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're no exception. None of us deserves the kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus has told us in this chapter what we deserve, the hell of fire. But God, who is rich in mercy, has lavished grace on humanity. He has given us common grace, the grace of time and life and joy that comes with living. And friends, today, if you have never come to Christ, you need to, you need to thank God for his kindness to you, just in giving you common grace. But you need to know, that if you do not bend the knee to Jesus, that is the only grace from God you can expect to receive. Because you are in a collision course with the wrath of God. And one day God will evaluate you based on the standard of his own moral perfection. He will find you lacking and you will receive the penalty of eternal condemnation. And so I plead with you, cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Because in Christ is amazing grace. The grace that those of us who have repentant faith have enjoyed. Salvific grace. The grace of what Luther called the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believing, friends, we have all failed to meet God's standard. We have all sinned. But there is one who has not sinned. There is one who has so perfectly obeyed the law, he can be called the fulfillment of the law. And at the cross... Jesus, this holy, perfect, glorious one, took our sin on himself. And even better news is he has credited his perfect righteousness to our account. So that as God applies this most rigorous standard, the standard of his own holy character, believing, friends, we no longer fail his test. Not because we're innately righteous, but because we stand in the imputed righteousness of Christ. What a gift. As John chapter 1 says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, not just common grace, not just salvific grace, but friends, we have the grace of adoption as the children of God, which Matthew chapter 7 will say is why God gives us, he lavishes us with good gifts. Believers, we are most blessed. And in our blessed condition, as the redeemed and regenerated people of God, Jesus calls us to walk by this highest standard, the moral perfection of God. Now you might say, well, Ben, come on, we cannot attain sinless perfection. And that's absolutely right, we can't. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We will fail in this life, and we all fail in many ways, do we not? And this standard of perfection... I don't want you to hear this and, and see this as a club with which you should beat yourself. Oh, I failed again. Beat myself. No. God has promised, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, 1 says, Believing, friend, you need to know this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God in Christ cleanses us and restores us when we bring our sins back to Him. So sin should drive us back to the Lord, but it should not drive us to despair. And yet, believing friends, while we will not attain sinless perfection in this life, God is at work in us, is He not? He's growing us. He's conforming us to the image of His beloved Son. He is perfecting us. And by His power and work in us, friends, we can increasingly pursue the standard of moral righteousness that we see in our God. 
we can strive to live the life we've been called to by the power of the Holy Spirit. Until one day, when the trumpet sounds, we will be raised and transformed, and then, friends, we will be perfect as he is perfect. But until then, beloved friends, let us rejoice, because Jesus has met the impossible standard of God for us. Because Jesus is making us ever more perfect and Christ-like as we walk the path of faith and obedience. Let us obey for Jesus has empowered us through the new covenant and the Holy Spirit to obey, not the Old Testament law, but the, the commands of the New Testament and the high calling of the ethic that we have seen in this chapter that reflects God's own perfection. May we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And let us love, friends, not just our brothers and sisters in the Lord, though surely we must love one another so that the world will know we belong to Christ. But let us love everyone especially those who hate us, who want to wrong us and persecute us. For as we love, even in that hardest situation, we show that we are indeed sons and daughters of the gracious God who loves and is gracious to his enemies.